You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I'm excited to bring you an enlightening interview with a man who has been at the forefront of Australian research translation for over 30 years. Originally from Cooma in New South Wales, Rob McInnes showed intellectual promise from an early age, earning a scholarship to the prestigious Sydney Boarding School of Kings, and eventually graduating from Sydney University with a double degree in science and law. As you'll hear, Rob's first job threw him into the deep end of intellectual property law as he became involved in negotiating the license for contact lens technology emerging from the research of the visionary ophthalmologist Professor Brian Holden. Building on this first experience, Rob has become a leading figure in Australian IP law and license negotiation, acting for parties on all sides of these transactions from universities and researchers to startups. SMEs and industry incumbents. Meanwhile, Rob himself has had to navigate the perilous world of the professional services industry, helping to build and witnessing the fall of legal practices across Sydney. These days, Rob runs his own boutique consultancy and advises research organisations, investors, startups and established companies on all things IP. Rob McInnes, welcome to Lab Notes. Hi Leo, it's great to be with you. So you've been a lawyer, a scientist, an investor, a non-executive director, an advisor, among other things. Can I start by asking simply, how do you introduce yourself and what you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm, you know, my trade ticket is as, as a lawyer, but in the area of law where I work, you know, in the commercialization of science, I'm always careful to point out to the people that I'm dealing with that I do, you know, have some basic science understanding, particularly in the in the life sciences and chemistry. If you were to go to my website now and look at the FAQ, you'd see that I pitch myself a little more as a business advisor in the IP aspects of this process of commercialising, you know, usually public sector research uh, generated IP. And, you know, how do we get that out into use and into the market? I'm trying to do a little bit less traditional lawyering in terms of drafting 50-page contracts. And I'm, I'm always very happy to uh, refer people to others who I know will do a great job rather than dig down into those kinds of jobs these days. Fair enough. Well, before we unpack the nuts and bolts of the IP negotiation process... I wonder if we could first get a sense of the makings of Rob McInnes. You grew up in a regional city of Cooma, and I understand you were raised by adoptive parents. Can you tell us what that early life was like? Yeah, I mean, that that sort of sounds more dramatic than it is. I mean, I I loved growing up in a country town, uh, and Cooma wasn't exactly such a hardship posting anyway, in the sense that uh, it was fairly cosmopolitan despite being small because it had had the, uh, the Snowy Mountain Scheme there. So lots of nationalities, you know, you could actually get a proper coffee, uh, even in the 70s, all of uh, all of that stuff. And yeah, I was I was the only child of older parents who owned and ran one of the local fruit and veg shops. And yes, I'm, I'm adopted, but I'm in that last cohort of adopted kids who grew up not being told that they were adopted. 
uh, my mother had a bunch of, you know, miscarriages and fertility issues and that kind of thing. Uh, she actually took a pregnancy to term, went with my father to Sydney and sadly had a, a, a stillbirth. And um, the uh, uh, the nuns, I, I believe she was, um, you know, I've, I've pieced this all together in later years. Um, the, uh, the nuns uh, said to a couple down the corridor, well, you know, you've already given up one child for adoption. We've talked about giving this one up. There's a lovely couple from the country down the corridor who've just had a stillbirth. How about it? And uh, I was I was taken back to Cooma as the child of my parents who had gone to Sydney with mum nine months pregnant and not even my aunts and uncles. It turned out uh, ever knew that, uh, that I was adopted and I only found out later in life. So, um, yeah. Anyway, there you go. Uh, it's a story. That is an incredible story. Uh, can, we, can we move on to your teenage years now, Rob? I was interested to see that you attended boarding school and specifically the prestigious Kings in Western Sydney and also a feeder school in the Southern Highlands. What were your experiences with this immersive style of education and being a boarder? Well, yeah, I mean, it was kind of odd for me, especially, you know, being the kid from the fruit shop in the country town. My my dad left school at 13. Um, my mum left school at 15. But they figured out that they had a bright kid. And at the age of nine, I would have been, I got sent off to Moss Vale uh, to Tudor House to sit a scholarship exam, got the scholarship and, uh, and the rest was history. Um, you know, Tudor House was then a feeder school for kings and, uh, and off I went. So it was kind of weird in the sense that I wasn't really the typical kid who went to a school like that. But I'll say this, my, my general sense of boys' schools, at least, is that there wasn't uh, really a lot of social snobbery. You know, I never got a hard time uh, for being the kid from the fruit shop. Um, I, <laughs> I did get a hard time for, you know, being a somewhat assertive and annoying nerd. Uh, you know, bo both of these schools had that kind of jock nerd dichotomy. You kind of had to choose one camp or the other. And, you know, and even though I played rugby and basketball and, you know, did all that sporty stuff, I was very much on the nerd side of, of the balance, which occasionally meant you got a hard time, but you also made some great friends among your, uh, your fellow nerds who, uh, who I'm still close with today. I dare say you're not the only one on that side of the dichotomy uh, among the Lab Notes podcast audience, Rob. <laughs> no, that's right. It's, uh, you know, revenge of the nerds. Uh, uh, some of us have turned out to do okay. So after you finished high school, you went on to do a double degree at Sydney University studying science and law. In hindsight, looking at your career, it's a perfect degree choice for what you're now doing. Was it always the plan to get into science commercialization or is that something you've fallen into? Yeah, I don't know. If someone's listening to this for <laughs> advice on how to plan a career, they uh, they could probably safely stop listening now because I, I, I genuinely can say I have never planned a career move or an education move that I've made in my life. It, it happened that, you know, in my HSC in those days, it was out of 500. I think I came in at 476, you know, kind of in the top half a percent. And so uh, everyone simply looks at you and says, okay, medicine or law. And I maybe not liking the side of blood, I don't really know what my thought process was. 
I said, okay, I guess it's law. But I was always interested in science. And this was the second year at Sydney Uni that you could enrol in a combined science and law degree. So it was fairly new. It did seem like a good idea at the time. I did fairly well in the science uh, and really only moderately well at the law. You know, it was really touch and go whether I headed off and did a PhD rather than continuing on and uh, completing the, the law degree. But anyway, complete it, I did. And, you know, it, it really is a combination that, that I would still recommend to anyone who's interested, you know, not just in kind of technical law with a science background, but as a precursor, if you're into the business side of things, maybe then heading off and doing an MBA after you've been working for a few years. I found it a really useful grounding, even for the more businessy roles that I've had, as well as the purely law jobs. So can we move into your early career now? I understand you were thrust almost immediately into the world of research commercialization. Your graduate job was with a law firm by the name of Mallisons, Stevens and Jarks. And one of the first assignments they gave you was with Professor Brian Holden. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was quite junior at the time. Uh, this would have been 1991. And, you know, I'd turned up to Mallison's and they'd said, oh, you've got a science degree, you're in IP, at a time when I didn't really know what IP was. But I was allocated to the IP group. And I had what was a fairly rare opportunity as a junior lawyer to work on the commercialization of the technology that became the focus night and day contact lenses. And um, make a long story short, I ended up effectively being able to run with it myself because it was kind of a one-off. The licensee was Cibervision, and the firm knew that Cibervision had come to it for this one-off job for a specific personal connection of one of the negotiators, but they weren't going to get Cibervision back as a client. And so as a junior, I was put on it with really minimal supervision. And it taught me a hell of a lot. You know, I, I had to sort of put all my IP theory into practice. I had obviously, to work on a deal structure. Fortunately, I had very informed and sophisticated clients who tolerated the fact that while my technical law skills and my drafting skills were great, I didn't have a lot of uh, experience at the time. What was really interesting was Brian Holden on the other side, a professor who'd always been a professor, but he showed tremendous sophistication in knowing how to get a commercial deal done. And, you know, you and I both know that's not really universal when it comes to professors trying to do deals. But he was fantastic and he, he knew the soft stuff. So walking into a room to negotiate and, you know, there's the smell of fresh brewing coffee and the cut flowers on the table. And he took my clients out to top Sydney restaurants every night for the week they were in town. And he just showed that he knew the basics and the building blocks of the deal that he wanted to do. But he also knew how to run a high stakes, cross border, high level negotiation. Yeah, definitely a skillful negotiator. Uh, just for our audience, can you give us a bit more detail about what that technology actually was? Well, essentially, these were the first contact lenses 
that you could pop in and leave in for 30 days or 30 nights. Because I didn't work on the patents for these, I never got into the details of the technology other than to know that it's essentially all about flexibility and oxygen permeability, not starving the eye of oxygen. You know, they really were at the time a breakthrough. And as a result, the CRC for eye research and through it, mainly CSIRO and UNSW, got $10 million plus uh, royalty checks for uh, for many, many years from the sales of those products. Definitely a, a science commercialization success story. Yes. <clears throat> so can we move on a bit through your career now? After that first foray, you went on to build an extensive portfolio of work in IP licensing. You founded a law practice within Shelston IP. You became a principal of Sprucen and Ferguson. And later in your career, you spent six years as a partner and director of a firm called Dibs Barker, which I understand dissolved in 2017 with many of its key people scooped up by a rival practice called Denton's. What did you learn about the, the kind of rise and fall of these practices as you were working as a lawyer? Yeah, it's interesting that whole trajectory. When I was running effectively boutique IP practices associated with decent patent attorney firms, it really was rather easy to build the business. You know, everyone knew what you did. You were in a shop which, you know, had a recognized brand as a boutique. And so, you know, for example, with Shelston's where I was in-house, I was the IP manager of James Hardy of all places uh, when Shelston's recruited me and they said, we don't have a Sydney IP law practice associated with our patent practice, so please create one. And that went fabulously, you know, by the end of my four and a half odd years there, you know, there was me, another partner, a couple of senior associates, everyone busy, really nice practice that, that still exists in other hands and is going very well today. Uh, and of course, Sprucens, which was and is the 800 pound gorilla of Sydney intellectual property firm, saw what I did there and said, OK, come and build our uh, our commercial transactions practice. And again, same thing, you know, fantastic growth. The GFC sort of interrupted the growth of that Sprucens practice and focused the firm a little less on the local clients who were my target. So, of course, I was right when I got tapped on the shoulder by Dibs Barker, a really well-regarded mid-tier uh, law firm with a quite a general practice and offices in, at the time, I think it was four capital uh, cities. It's a real lesson. You look at a what appears to be a very large law firm with a very well-known brand, but it was kind of illustrating, I think, the way the services industry was changing. You kind of you're always going to be fine if you're the absolute top tier, and your firm is the firm that people know they want to go to if they're betting the company on a particular transaction or a particular dispute you know so if you are Malison in effect the the brand as well as the people sells the product uh, if you're in a small boutique everyone knows that you're you've got great expertise once you're well known I mean I'm now a, a solo uh, practitioner with my own little boutique and it's going absolutely gangbusters but I think the firms that are less likely to make it uh, as society and technologies change, are the rather undifferentiated, full-service, mid-tier 
firms, and I know about law firms, but I expect this is probably true of uh, other areas uh, as well. And so I did have that experience of being in a firm where my group was doing perfectly well, but there's a sense of a few partners who are high billing partners get the idea that they can go down the road, get a bit more money or work with their old mate from uni who they, uh, who they like. And there's a sense that the business starts to circle the drain once that process begins. And so it was um, somewhat disheartening to be in a place that went through that process. But fortunately, I had, I had been telling the firm for several years that in my 55th year, I was off to do my own thing. And uh, I resigned from the partnership on schedule for what I had always said I would do. So I wasn't actually part of the, the interaction and the deal making with, with Denton's when that occurred. Uh, I'd actually ceased to be a partner when, uh, when that got done. So let's move on from the ructions of the service industry and get back to the art of IP negotiation itself. In researching for this interview, I came across a talk you gave for the QUT Bridge program. In it, you spelled out some of the challenges and opportunities that come from IP negotiation with public sector research institutions. I'll make sure there's a link to that talk in the podcast description, but I wondered if you could give us a quick synopsis here. What are your recommendations for people who are about to dive into an IP negotiation process? Ooh, so that's a big question and I would I would urge people to go to the link, but I guess my, my starting point, uh, most of the transactions that I do are transactions between public sector research in some capacity on the one hand and the commercial world on the other. I act for a bunch of startups, but I tend to act for those startups having been introduced to them through their VC fund or through their um, their incubator. Uh, so these are startups that have got some level of sophistication. Uh, I also act, you know, for several large companies that are the receptors for this uh, IP out of public sector research. Um, I think probably the the biggest pitfall that I see, and it comes really from both sides, but maybe mainly from the research sector, is the idea that sorting out, say, a license agreement is essentially a mechanistic process where you, you go to the shelf and you get a thing called a license agreement and that this is going to form the basis of the relationship and that it's essentially a legal process rather than a business process. Uh, my sense of it is that for people with science backgrounds, and I count myself in this, we would like there to be effectively a machine where you can feed agreed facts and agreed principles into it and crank the handle and out comes a fair agreement. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit like the Monty Python skit where the person is being told you've got to haggle and they don't want to haggle. Uh, when you do a deal, there is absolutely nothing wrong with haggling and you really do need to haggle. I find people with science backgrounds tend not to be natural hagglers. And so a large part of what I do is trying to get my clients to focus less on the legal document and more on the elements of getting the deal done. Um, just briefly, uh, how I do that is by saying, do not touch a legal document until you can write an email to the other side, typically with six to 10 bullet points in it, saying, here is what we think the deal is. 
and they can come back with an unequivocal, yes, we agree that is the deal, or vice versa. Uh, I find that once people start uh, sending back and forth, you know, even formal term sheets, but certainly 30 to 50 page contracts, there's focus on the boilerplate, there's kind of pushing the work off to the lawyers. Oh, yeah, it's a legal contract now, so the lawyers can do the work. There's a degree of avoidant behaviour. It's fairly common for a client, particularly a new client, to get back a complex redraft from the other side that, you know, fundamentally changes the commercial structure of the deal. Uh, and within five minutes, I'll get an email from that client just saying, oh, Rob, what do you think of this? Uh, as if it's somehow not their responsibility to to come to a view. And, you know, if I don't get to read 50 pages for a day or two, the opportunity has been missed that should have been taken, which is to go back within 20 minutes of the other side sending a massive sea of red ink and saying, no, you can't do that. We've already agreed the key principles of this deal and you've just made a bunch of changes that are inconsistent with this. So I'm not even sending this document to my lawyer. Uh, I'm telling you it's unacceptable because you've made changes that go against our uh, agreed bullet points. That's the correct response in that situation, not to go, looks like a legal contract, I'll just flick it to my lawyer. So there was one last issue I wanted to pull out from your QUT talk, which was the reasons universities should engage in technology transfer in the first place. I believe you attributed the slide to Lewis Burnerman, who led the technology transfer office for the University of Pennsylvania for many years. Essentially, the slide pointed out that financial gain and license revenue is only one outcome that can emerge from technology transfer. And in fact, it might be subordinate to other items like staff development, goodwill, or simply ensuring that university research gets to see the light of day in a commercial world. In your experience, are these non-financial motives front of mind for universities, or is there still a fixation on license revenue? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm going to get accused of being self-serving here because, you know, a lot of my practice now is taking licenses out of universities and other, other research institutes. But, you know, Lou didn't say, and I don't say, that universities shouldn't receive fair recompense for the value of IP. But my impression that I've gained over doing this now for, you know, several decades is that the universities that do tech transfer well act like they they really just want to get the piece of technology out the door. You know, my, my mental picture of the tech transfer office person is that, you know, they've got a pile of opportunities that keeps getting added to and, you know, their job is to just try to find a receptor for each of those opportunities so that they can move on to the next one. If, on the other hand, you do every deal as if you're trying to make it the deal that's going to fund the office for the next five years, then the, the process tends to be slow. Um, occasionally, partners will simply give up and go somewhere else. And the fact is also there's just you know, it, it's not the primary mission of a research institution to make money through commercialization of IP. And good tech transfer really does address well the primary mission of disseminating knowledge for the public good. And disseminating knowledge for the public good, I think, is the primary mission of these organizations. 
So another thing I'd like to get your thoughts on is, is how researchers can handle the complexity of the IP negotiation process. Something that I've heard from scientists many times is that they might have an exciting technology to hand and even a potential end user in mind, but the commercial negotiation and shepherding a deal through their institution's bureaucracy is simply too time consuming to warrant the effort. Is it your sense that these processes are indeed overly bureaucratic? Or is it just that researchers have unrealistic expectations about how smooth it should be? Look, it's very easy to take a how hard can it be approach to something of which you have no understanding. So, so if I had to describe the kind of the median professor or researcher who has said to me, oh, this is ridiculous, this stuff, you know, the documents are too long and the process takes too long. Uh, the median person who said that to me probably says it because they, you know, quite understandably just don't have any understanding of the range of issues that need to be covered off. And if someone says to me, well, you know, can't we have a license agreement that's five pages instead of 35 pages? I, I can very easily put to them just the list of issues that you typically find in a license agreement, which itself runs to a good four pages long and say, all right, explain to me which of these protections you don't think your organisation should have under this contract. So, you know, at the end of the day, people just have to have realistic expectations. Uh, if someone comes to me with a typical licence deal, one of the first things I say to them is, this is going to take three to six months. And, uh, you know, these days I'm in the happy position where if they push back and say, we want to do it in two weeks, I just say, well, in that case, somebody else will be helping you because I no longer nod along with impossible expectations until the inevitable realisation that it's not going to happen. I'd prefer to short circuit that process and just not act for you. So, you know. I think if you end up with the wrong legal teams on one side or even on both sides of a deal, then things can become unnecessarily prolonged. But more often than not, the unrealistic expectations are the problem. So can I talk briefly too about, I guess, the other end of this? We've talked about the negotiation process of setting up a license deal. But in your experience, has there been much conflict at the back end where universities or companies are contesting license deals in court? Yeah, we don't get a lot of litigation about these in Australia, you know, in part because we're just not such a litigious uh, society. Um, yeah, there are definitely disputes over the ongoing performance of a licence agreement. That's quite common. And what I find interesting is, um, to the extent that I have visibility into how deals go after I've helped with them, uh, no, no technology owner has ever come to me and said, you know, Rob, I'm, I'm absolutely gutted. We could have negotiated a 7% royalty for that technology and we only got a 5% royalty. And, you know, I'm weeping when every royalty check comes in because it could have been that much bigger uh, if we got the 7%. You know, that that's something that no client has ever said to me. But of the deals where I've had visibility into how they're going, about half of all licensees drop the ball, you know, make all sorts of promises about how great it's going to be and then just don't put in the effort don't kind of meet those minimum performance criteria that every license agreement should have and so the thing i drive home to uh, licensor clients to owners of the technologies is that 
the so-called diligence obligations actually are a key element of any licensing deal and they have to be addressed up front. And licensees use all sorts of tactics to avoid this. The typical big company licensee tactic against a university or against a small tech company is for the big company to have lots and lots of science interactions. You know, hopefully they'll have the scientists rather than the key business leads talking to each other, preferably for about a year, you know, even more if you can do it. The idea being to to get the researchers to fall in science love so that then they'll effectively turn into champions for the deal with the with the business people. And then the idea is they'll try and uh, put forward a contract that's, you know, 35 pages of boilerplate that's going to go backwards and forwards with lawyers making edits. And they'll try to do that before the conversation about the royalty rate and the upfront and the diligence obligations uh, and the other key business elements. Effectively, they're trying to get the research organization or the small company into a mindset of we have invested, you know, 18 months of our lives and money on lawyers in this deal. And so we are going to do this deal. And this is how Australian research institutions and small technology companies tend to get done over. So this is why I say get those six to 10 bullet points, which are the key commercial elements of the deal sorted first before you let a counterparty in a deal soak up a bunch of your time and uh, energy. So in the discussion so far, we've mostly focused on the situation where a pool of university research is being transferred to an established company. What about the situation where the researchers or students want to form a new entity, a spin-out company or a startup from university research? Is that common? It, it is, and you can sort of do a fairly sophisticated decision tree about, you know, which technology opportunities are probably opportunities that should go straight into an established company under a fairly vanilla license agreement versus which technology opportunities should become spin-outs. But there's also, there's political elements and there's sociological elements that have a lot of influence. So, um, Back in the day when Robin Batterham was the chief scientist, so I guess we're talking kind of 2000, 2001, I remember having a, an open argument with him across a conference room at a conference because he had taken the position, and maybe it was to be a bit of a provocateur, but he had taken the position effectively that licensing Australian technology overseas to the dastardly multinationals was... Uh, you know, somehow inherently a, a bad thing and the patriotic thing to do would be for the universities and CSIRO, et cetera, to set up uh, more companies. And he was saying we should be setting up 500 companies a year. I think that there's the right way to make a decision on the merits, whether to do that or not, but kind of, if you like, the almost economic populist kind of argument about setting up Australian companies doesn't really hold water. Um, other situations that happen, less so now, but still to some extent, there you can get specific grant schemes which uh, effectively incentivise the formation of a spin-out company. And so during the, I think, late 90s, early 2000s, there was a biotech funding scheme where to get your half a million bucks, you had to set up a spin-out company. And so huge numbers of uh, spin-out companies were set up that really were just set up to get a grant to take the project a bit 
further, uh, but not really advancing the business commercialization uh, of the technology. Uh, another factor, of course, is that sometimes you have uh, inventors, the professor and the postdoc, and they really fancy themselves as founders of a startup company. And, you know, I mean, you and I both know that the startup world, it's really a social community as much as uh, anything else these days. And, you know, and we're both uh, and we're both part of that. And it is a great community to belong to. You know, I, I'd go so far as to say that there's there's also a fashion for startups in the current environment. So, you know, in an ideal world, I'd, I'd rather these decisions were just made objectively on the on the merits should this tech go to a big company that currently exists or should we form a new business but you do have to take all those other factors into account particularly just the willingness of the inventors and the desire of the inventors to get involved in taking their technology forward i think this next question is going to weave into those issues quite a lot rob but there's a lot of data and publications floating around that suggest australia has been lagging behind other oecd countries on key metrics of commercialization as somebody who's been at the coalface of the technology transfer ecosystem here i wonder if that data rings true to you it it actually doesn't or rather there's a lot of there's a lot of doom saying uh, about tech transfer in Australia. And where we tend to sit at the bottom of the rankings uh, tends to be measures of kind of direct collaboration. So metrics based on, for example, how many patents have one inventor from a company and one inventor from a university, uh, that kind of metric. Uh, when it comes to patent metrics and license metrics and spin-out metrics, we're actually not too bad. It's a while since I've looked at it, but if anyone's interested, there's um, there's an OECD paper, I think it's from 2014, uh, where they dug into surveys of research commercialization and surveys are done uh, in Europe and in the US and in Australia, effectively looking at what are the patents, licenses and spin-outs. Usually the metric is per $100 million dollars of public funding for research. So trying to normalize for the size of the research sector in that way. And when you do that, you find that unsurprisingly, the US is in front and Israel, despite its small numbers in terms of, you know, per research dollar, uh, Israel also does very well. Um, then you'll see the UK. But not far behind the UK and in some elements ahead of the UK is Australia. Uh, and, and of course, after that is, is daylight. So, um, you know, we really can hold our head up in, uh, in Australia. I think we could, I think we could do better. Uh, and I think uh, how they kind of fixed commercialization to some extent in the UK was making sure that there was a separate stream of funding that the government specifically intended to go to the funding of tech transfer activities. You know, in, in Australia, tech transfer offices have to be kind of funded out of general university budgets, uh, you know, and hopefully they have a couple of good deals that help them to meet their expenses. But we really do have to accept that many tech transfer offices will not make a profit However, their functions are still vitally important in terms of the core mission of 
a university or research institute and therefore they do deserve effectively a stream of funding that is specifically for them. Yeah, and it, look, I, I agree. And it's definitely seemed like within Australia, the ecosystem has been maturing over the last decade or so. You know, a lot of new incubators are, are growing up and, and new programs are emerging. Yeah, and practice, you know, best practice is um, a lot closer, generally speaking, in the, uh, in the tech transfer world than uh, it has been in the past. Uh, and, and in fact, I've also looked at studies about which universities do particularly well. Effectively, it said that of the tech transfer offices that were doing really well and were regarded as having best practice, most of them made pretty much all of their money from one or two deals, suggesting that tech transfer office success or competence wasn't some wild scatter plot. It just happened that some offices happened to have captured the value from a couple of high value technologies and that's why they were uh, doing well whereas if you hadn't had your big one you were going to be a drain on the exchequer of the university for a few more years. Yeah that's really interesting Rob and actually it reminds me of a really similar point from your talk which was that even in the US which is so often held up as an exemplar of technology transfer even there most commercialization offices run at a deficit. Absolutely. Incredible. Well, we should move on to one of my final questions, which is about Rob in the present day and kind of the maturing of your career alongside the maturing of the ecosystem in Australia. You have moved on from pure law to become more of an advisor to groups like Oz Biotech, the University of Technology in Sydney, the CSIRO, and as a mentor and investor within Sydney Angels. Reflecting on this, what do you think have been the biggest changes in the Australian startup ecosystem over your career and, and what changes do you think are still needed? Hmm. I mean, you know, we're, we're now, when we talk about over my career, we're now talking since, since 1985. Um, and pretty much all of the things that we have been talking about, you know, barely existed back in the mid-80s. Uh, you know, there were a few decent tech transfer offices, but, you know, most universities had, had very little uh, capability at all. I mean, there were startups, but there certainly wasn't a, a startup ecosystem and a level of support where a, a startup can go to an incubator, effectively become part of the social system of startups and, uh, and learn a lot. I guess going back to a very high level, there's just been an appreciation of the role of intellectual property in the economy. So when I was when I was coming of age, the Australian economy was still very much a um, uh, it was just dominated by oligopolies. You would have a handful of large firms who were the incumbents in an industry, and you know in my early years we were still in the age of uh, tariffs. You know where. If you were a, a company that was selling the same product that uh, you'd been selling for 50 years and innovative, high-quality, cheap products start coming in from overseas, this was still the era when you would go to the government and you would say, hey, we need to put up tariffs uh, against these uh, products coming in from overseas. Otherwise, um, you know, otherwise I'm going to have to lay off workers in, in someone's electorate. And this would be seen as an argument for, for government interference in the economy. Uh, also, social change. The fact that, you know, when I think about it, I worked at James Hardy and an engineer when I was 
just coming of age, an engineer would probably join Hardy's at 24 and retire at 65 with a gold watch. So they didn't have to worry about how do we protect our IP. Uh, they had all the engineers, you know, that effectively joined them young and stayed with them forever. And their competitive advantage, their skills, their trade secrets, you know, never, never leaked out. You compare that to now where, you know, most technically sophisticated employees would probably only stay three to five years in a, in a given job uh, where everyone's moving around, where companies are continually forming and growing and then potentially falling over. There's this turmoil and intellectual property is the asset class that companies look to in order to uh, preserve their competitive advantage. And, you know, just to finish off on that point, there's, you know, charts I could show you of the value of various stock indices uh, represented by intangibles. So, you know, when I first started work, most of the value of the ASX, you know, probably I think 70% of the value of the uh, ASX was in tangible assets, you know, physical things you could drop on your foot, factories and inventory. Whereas, you know, now I think about 85% of the value of the uh, ASX is represented by intangible assets. So that's where intellectual property has taken us. And it's been an absolutely fantastic ride to uh, to have been part of that phenomenon. Well, that sounds like a good place to wrap up, Rob. Before we go, can I ask one final question, which is whether you have any advice you would like to impart to young researchers and entrepreneurs engaging in research translation? Is there something they should take away from your life experience? Use the support that the ecosystem offers you because it's fantastic that we've uh, that we've got that now you know so so if you are in in sydney for example uh you know if you're a researcher get to know your your tech transfer office but also head out to Everly uh, and, you know, go to the Cicada Innovations monthly drinks when we're all able to, uh, uh, to get together uh, again. Um, go to the open events that the various incubators and accelerators uh, put on. Get to know the people in your ecosystem. Get on the newsletters of the VCs and take a look at what's available. So I, I was helping someone just the other day with uh, employment possibilities and I had a look at the newsletter of Main Sequence Ventures, you know, essentially CSIRO's uh, affiliated VC fund. And, you know, their newsletter has uh, a whole bunch of employment opportunities in, in startups, you know, who would have known that this is what the investment fund is, uh, is doing. So, you know, make yourself part of the ecosystem. Uh, doing technology transfer and commercialization, even in COVID, is very much a person-to-person -person business. So get to know the people who can help you. And, you know, in this game, most of us are... Um, you know, even though we are nerds, most of us are nice folks and we're happy to help. That's some wonderful parting advice, Rob, and it's been an amazing chat. Thank you for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. Really appreciate it, Leo. Thank you. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. You can find links to both of those organizations, along with our guests' biography and more, in the description below. 
Our music is sourced from Pebble Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.